Redeemer family, um, I want to thank you for continuing to tune in and continuing to worship the Lord with us. Also, thank you for your continued generosity to the church. I'm going to um, pray and then read God's word and we'll jump in into Romans 14. Let's pray. Our Lord, uh, our God, our King, we bow our hearts to you and uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for cleansing us with your blood. And because we have been cleansed, we are now your children, children that you have promised to supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory, children whom you've given access to your Father, and the Father in heaven, he looks at us and he provides for the birds of the heavens, he clothes the lilies of the field, and he comes to us and he says, you are more valuable to me than everything. I will take care of you. Thank you, God, for being a good God to give good gifts and resources to your people. And we pray that what we give, that you would take it and that you would further your kingdom. And we also come, Lord, as your children, children delighting in the word of God. You're a father who delights to feed us and to change us and to give us all that we need that we might grow into him who is our head, Christ. And so we turn our hearts to Romans 14. It's inspired. It's ours. I pray that as we read it and expound upon it, that you will feed our souls and change our lives as well. We love you. Amen. Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let, the one who eats not, uh, let, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and also gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living why do you pass judgment on your brother? And you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for the one who thinks it is unclean. 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. For whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Amen. I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Hans Bollmann. He's famous, but he's famous for the wrong reason. You see, he was a rare art serial vandal. That means that he took joy and pleasure in vandalizing prized and precious masterpieces of artists. He's been known to pour sulfuric acid on pieces created by Rembrandt. In 1977, Rembrandt's painting, Jacob's Blessing Joseph's Son, was attacked by Hans. It is believed that by pouring sulfuric acid on that painting, the damages exceeded $27 million. He also defaced portraits of Martin Luther and his wife, Catherine, that by the time that he died of cancer in 2009, it is estimated that he, he, he damaged 50 paintings worth $153 million. He had a thing for sabotaging masterpieces. You know, I think that's a helpful way to think about our text this morning. Paul is going to show us this beautiful picture, this masterpiece that, that God has been working on from the foundations of the world. God himself has been painting this beautiful masterpiece, but Paul is going to show us also a big problem, a big problem where humans can actually deface the masterpiece that God himself has been creating. And Paul is going to introduce us to how we can move forward, not as those who deface God's masterpiece, but as those who partner with him and protect what God has been doing for all time. Three points. I want us to first look at this beautiful picture that God has been painting. And it's a family portrait, Redeemer. And on this family portrait, 
God is painting both new people coming into the family of God, but he's also painting this portrait because new people are coming, but the new people coming into his family are different. He's painting this beautiful masterpiece that his, his family is growing into this multi-everything family. New people are being added, and this family is diverse, and this is God's magnum opus. Now, I want to show you this in the text. There's a reference in verse 20, and I want you to ignore the first few words, but Paul says, do not for the sake of food, Underline that next phrase, destroy the work of God. Paul sees something, that God is at work. He's doing something, and I want to show you what he's doing, but I want to show you uh, Paul's burden for Rome and why that's important. Earlier in this book, Paul talks about wanting to get to Rome, to be mutually encouraged by their faith and his faith. And that was actually a part of a larger plan, right? In the book of Acts, we learn that Paul wants to get to, to Rome, and he's about to be killed for testifying to the Jews of Jesus, who is the Christ. And then he pulls something out of his bag, right? They're thinking that Paul is just the Hebrew of the Hebrews. And all of a sudden, Paul starts to talk and, and speak in the Greek language. And Roman soldiers, they, they hear that, and then they think they're in trouble. Why? Because Paul, we, we discover in the book of Acts that Paul is not just the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's also a Roman citizen. And in the midst of about to be being beaten and killed, he pulls out this Roman citizenship card. And it turns out that, that, that he was born in Tarsus, Sicilia. It's, it's, it was a Roman province. And the soldiers were afraid because they knew you cannot lay hands on a Roman citizen unjustly. And so Paul appeals to Caesar. And the soldiers, they, they summon 200 more soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to protect Paul and to get him to the Roman governor Felix. And then that's where he appeals to Rome. He appeals to go to Caesar. Now, why would Paul want to get to Rome? Rome was the most dominant city for 500 years. It was populous, it was diverse, it was dense, it was the center of economic trade, it was the most dense and diverse city on the planet in Paul's day. And Paul saw it as a key to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, that, that by going to Rome, the gospel would go to the nooks and the crannies of the earth. And, and, and that, that's kind of what God has been doing from beginning of time. God always has this way of putting his servants in proximity to powerful international leaders and cities. You think about Moses before Pharaoh. You think about Joseph before Pharaoh. You think about Moses going into Egypt. You think about Jonah going to Nineveh. You think about Daniel in Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar. You think about Nehemiah with Artaxerxes, Esther before Ahasuerus. You think about Jesus before Pilate. God has this thing of always putting servants in high places to remind the kings of the world that there is one true king. 
You must bow the knee to him. And so for Paul, Rome only made sense. And that's where we get the book of Romans. I'm convinced that it could only be written by Paul. Paul knew Roman culture, Roman thought, because he was a Roman citizen. And being raised as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he also knew Hebrew culture, Hebrew thought. And so that's why you get in, in the book of Romans, Paul could come out of the gates and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for everyone who believes the Jew first and then the Greek. And then notice what happens in the book of Romans. Paul starts to call out everybody. He says, Gentiles, you suppress the knowledge of God. You claim to be wise, but you become foolish. Look at your behavior and you Jews don't think that you're better off. You preach against, against adultery and you commit adultery. You preach against stealing and you steal. He says circumcision, circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, but a matter of the heart. And then Paul goes on to say that there is no one righteous, no, not one, not Jew, not Greek. And he could say this because he was a blended culturally man. And he condemns everyone to sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. All fall short of the glory of God. No human being will be justified in the sight of God by the law, but rather there is a righteousness that's apart from the law that proceeds from faith. And it's foolish to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block for the Jews. But for those who believe, it's the power of God for salvation. Only Paul could write that. And here is what we see in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is evidence of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That's why I had Bill read those passages from Genesis. Because God promised Abraham two, two things that I want to focus on for our passage. He says, through you, the nations, plural, of the earth will be blessed. And he also says, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the sea and the stars in the heavens. God promised Abraham two things about the family picture. In the family of God, you're going to see cultural diversity. Through you, the nations will be blessed, not just the Jewish nation. And through you, your descendants will be numerous like the sand and like the stars. And you know why this is important? Because in the book of Romans, that's what happens. God is growing his church diversely where there's Jews and Gentiles coming in. And God's growing his church numerically, which means that you have seasoned believers sitting alongside new baby Christians. And that's the language behind verses 10 and 13 and 15, where Paul uses this language of 
brothers or brothers and sisters. Look, look right there uh, in verse 11 where Paul says, As I live, says the Lord, that every knee and every tongue shall confess to me. Look, look right there at verse 20 that this is the work of God. The work of God is to build this multi-everything family that's growing and growing and growing across continents, across countries, across people groups. And then it's growing also where new believers are coming into the family as a result of bowing the knee to Jesus. This is God's masterpiece, and it's beautiful. And this is his work that Paul is talking about right there in verse 20. Now, the second point, I want to talk about a big problem. And here's the big problem. God's beautiful masterpiece is often defaced by the church. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about a woman, and her name is Sally. And, and she says, th- these are his words, Sally had the misfortune of being born beautiful. Now think about that. Beauty and misfortune, they, they don't seem to correlate. But what Keller is actually saying that some beauty, something that is good, can equally become something that's really, really hard. And he unpacks Sally's life, that she learned to use her beauty to manipulate others, and then others use her beauty to manipulate her. But I want you to think about that equation, something good, something beautiful, also being something difficult and hard. And this is the case that I want to make to you in this passage is that numerical growth and cultural diversity, though that's something beautiful, it's also something that's problematic. Not for God, but for us. Now, what do I mean when I say cultural diversity? Culture is a tricky word. In 2014, the word culture was Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It was the word of the year. And they made that their, their word of the year because they saw that word, that it had the biggest spike in lookups that year. And so what is culture? Andy Crouch, he defines culture this way. What human beings make for and of the world. That, that, that's culture. What we make for the world and what we make of the world. So it, it comes from this one side of it is, 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 is imagination and art and the ways that we contribute to the flourishing of the world, that that's culture. But another defi- the other side of that, it, it's what we make of the world. It's what we make of life. It's what we make of death. It, it's what we make of meaning. It's what we make of this terrible, beautiful, broken, glorious world. He goes on to say that that, that culture is also iterative and it's reflective. Iterative meaning that when we are born, we're not reinventing fire. We're not reinventing new languages, so to speak, but rather we're kind of getting in and improving upon what we've already inherited. But he also talks about culture as being reflexive in the sense that culture acts on us and it shapes us. Now, I want you to imagine what would it, it have been like to be Jewish? 
to grow up with Jewish culture, where Jewish people contribute to the fabric of the world, but, but Jewish people also see the world in, 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 a, in, a, in a lens that, 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 that's different from non-Jews. And so if you were Jewish, you were raised with feast. You were raised with a Jewish calendar. You were raised with these important pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to the temple. If you were raised Jewish, you had a special diet and, and dress codes. And, and you had this day called the Sabbath, which began on a Friday evening and, and extended into Saturday evening. And, and, and preparations were made for that day. And how you spent that day was important because it communicated something. It communicated that I can rest and cease from my strivings because I have one true provider. He's in heaven and he is the creator and he is worthy to be worshiped. And, and I'm going to put life on hold and commune and connect and enjoy him and his people. Now imagine being shaped that way. And then being, imagine being raised as a Gentile. What did you contribute to the world? How did you make meaning of the world? That they had competing ideas about creation and, 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 and no food restrictions and, and no sense of the Sabbath. And, and, and they never made a trip to Jerusalem to worship at some temple because in Rome, the city of all cities, they got better buildings. And, and what do you mean I need to stop working on Friday and, 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 and do nothing? And, and, and you know what we do on Friday nights? If, if you were in Rome, maybe you went to the Colosseum. And you saw gladiators fighting each other to death. And you saw gladiators fighting lions. And this was for sport. Now, imagine both of them, the Jews and the Gentiles, with their differing cultures, all of a sudden seeing their need for Jesus and bowing the knee and trusting in him and then coming into this multicultural family of God. Just because they met Jesus, they don't check their culture at the door. They don't have to like all the same things and dress the same way. That we share a common faith and hope and love in Christ, but we're still individuals with different stories and preferences and opinions that have been shaped by the way that we've been raised. And, and, and the Bible does speak to what is clear. Certain things are sinful and wrong. And then the Bible also acknowledges areas where we have freedom. But the coming together of diversity is going to be hard. It's going to be, present some challenges. But what about, about the other type of diversity that, that, that God promised Abraham, this growing family, which to borrow the language from Abraham, that think about the image of God painting this masterpiece. And every time someone is born again, their face is etched on this family portrait. But do you know what we're getting into? It means that you're going to have older seasoned Christians sitting next to new baby Christians. And it could be that the, the quote, older mature Christian is 25 and they've been walking with the Lord for 20 years, and the newer Christian is 50, and they're a babe in Christ. The last that I checked that when we come to Christ, we aren't instantly mature. 
we have to grow and we have to learn and, and, and we're, we're still drinking milk and, and we're going to get to the meat later on. We know enough of the gospel that I'm a sinner in need of grace and, and Christ is the only way. He's the truth and he's the life. But beyond that, we, we got to grow up and, and you're putting these two different people in the same family next to each other and that's going to be problematic. God is working to grow this church diversely and numerically. Some are going to be weak and some are going to be strong. Some are going to be new Christians and old Christians. Some are going to have cultural preferences that differ. And these aren't just preferences that differ, but look at verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than the other while another esteems all days alike. Look at that phrase. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, these aren't just cultural things that we're accepting to accept. But Paul actually is saying that these persons have tarried and toiled. They've examined scriptures. They've been prayerful. They're patient. And they arrive at a conviction and have a view around a day that's different from others. And this diversity and this growth it's problematic. Now, how do we know it's problematic? Look at what Paul says in verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. They were quarreling over, I can eat this and I should not eat that. And this day, this Sabbath, perhaps the Sabbath day is still a high water mark day. And the Gentiles are possibly saying, we don't have to do that. It's been fulfilled in Christ. We meet on the Lord's day and they're going back and forth. And notice what Paul said they're doing. They're quarreling. They're despising. They're passing judgment over what? Are they passing judgment over justification by faith alone? Are they passing judgment over what is sin and who is Jesus? No, look at verse 1 of chapter 14. They're quarreling over opinions 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 there's some things that are essential and then there are areas in the lives of all believers where we're free by God to have opinions and so do you think that this day is holy and you do it unto the Lord that's your opinion and you can do it and do you think that you should eat this or not eat this and you have tarried and prayed and exa examined scripture and you arrive at this conclusion knowing that either action is not commending you to God, your salvation is not based on this, but this is a preference, it's an opinion after you have wrestled and bathed this thing in prayer and what they were doing was passing judgment on opinions. They were basically condemning someone guilty of committing sin in areas where God says, no, that's not sinful. Did you pay attention to who's doing this in our passage? Over food, over drink, over days. Paul calls them opinions. This isn't persecution from the outside family. This is conflict within the body. These are Christians passing judgment, condemning, arguing, fighting. And they are defacing that beautiful picture God is making. 
And I don't want us to think that that was a problem just for them. We're blessed by being in a cross-cultural church. And we're blessed to be in a church where people are coming to know Jesus. And that blessing can easily be problematic. We're different. We live in different cities. We vote differently. We have differing views around what justice should look like. We have different backgrounds and experiences. And I don't want us to be in a place where we deface the work of God because of our opinions and preferences. You know, you can read the same book and arrive at different conclusions, and both conclusions are right so long as it is done in faith. Think about the book of Proverbs. It says, do not get drunk with wine. Wine is mocked. A strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it will not be wise. That's Proverbs. But Proverbs also says, honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of your produce, and your barns will be filled with plenty of wine. Give drink to the one who is perishing. Give drink and wine to the one who is distressed, right? You're reading the exact same book, and the book is saying two different things. And here's what can happen. We can be in the camp where we don't think anyone should drink. And then we can be in the other camp where we think, man, consuming alcohol in moderation, it's not sinful. And what we can do, if we're not careful, is start to pass judgment on one another. We can do that. In a few weeks, we're going to resume in-person worship. And I think that's going to be a test. You have some people who don't feel ready to return. They have examined the scriptures. They have studied the disease and how it spread. And they're in a rhythm where worshiping at home with their children, they enjoy it because they can hit pause and explain things and go to the restroom and come back and and they're thinking about the long game. I mean, if we have to stay out five months as opposed to ministering in this community for 50 years, Pastor L, I'm okay with taking more time. And even if we do open it up, I'm afraid. And then you have another group, right? They're ready. They want to come back. They want to be in the body. They want to be here in person. And they're also sort of reading the, the, the danger of, 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 of not resuming. The Barner reports came out that showing that people are slowly not tuning in to any service. And so these people are kind of reading that data thinking like, man, if we're not careful, if we let this go on too long, Satan is going to get in there and, and rock people to sleep. And, and, we're not, and, and we're slowly going to get out of rhythm. And some say, man, I just want to be around the body. I want to sing. Uh, uh, I, I just want to be encouraged in that way. And here is what can happen. Those two camps of people 
can start to pass judgment. Why would you come back? That's not loving. And why would you want to stay at home, right? That's not holy. And what Paul is actually encouraging us from this passage is to have a third category of Christian freedom. That as we go before the Lord and seek his face and examine our hearts, if we arrive at different conclusions, we have no right to pass judgment. Our last point, how do we become partners with God as he paints this beautiful picture? How do we become partners? The first is through repentance, Redeemer. We've all done this, maybe not with COVID-19, but we have all passed judgment in matters. Just to be honest, there's a lot of freedom. And if we're going to partner with God, then it starts with going back to the cross. It starts with going to Jesus and saying, I blew it. I dumped my opinions upon a fellow image bearer. I put myself in the place of God. And I'm wrong and I need your grace. You see, we don't need Jesus' grace to simply get into the kingdom. We need it now because we're all guilty of doing this. Repentance. The second thing is, is remembering. What do we need to remember? I love what Paul says in verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, what Paul is actually telling people in the body, that people are not your masters. No human person that you can talk to right now in touch physically went to a cross for you. No mere human shows you in Jesus before the foundations of the world. No human, mere human being rendered the righteousness that God requires on your behalf to God. That people did not ultimately open your eyes to the glory of God in the face of Christ. We aren't enslaved to people or their opinions. Paul says we don't even die apart from the Lord, that we belong to the Lord, that whether we live or whether we die, we are Jesus's and Jesus's alone. And he says we will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will give an account not to our neighbor. We will give an account to the Lord. That is so freeing. Lecrae, he, he has uh, a song, and one of the songs is free from it all. And he's wrestling with being enslaved to the opinions of people. And he says if you live for their acceptance, you'll die from their rejection. And he goes on to write, I was so depressed, I was such a mess, I couldn't shake it off. Another murder on the television. Man, somebody go turn it off. I spoke my mind. I got attacked for it. Thought these people had my back. Now they saying I asked for it. 
I guess I'm just another black boy. Then they get killed to mere rice and they go on with their life. They tell me to shut up talking about it like I should just talk about Christ. Truth is, I started to doubt God, started to question my purpose. I started to act out. And that's what he's getting at. He's getting at the way what people say about him, their opinions about what he should be rapping about, how it weighed on him where he went to the mirror and did not even recognize himself. And he says, if you live for their acceptance, you will die when you don't get it. But then in Jesus, we're free. He has freed you, beloved, from needing the validation from others. What would it look like to wake up and say, I'm a child of God. I'm loved, I'm known, I'm cared for. That no one is my master but Christ alone. Lord, give me wisdom as I navigate these complex decisions. But may I never be enslaved and needy of what others think in areas where you give me freedom. What would it look like to wake up and say that that other person is my brother and sister and Christ is their master and he is a great keeping God? Their experiences are not mine. Let me be slow to pass judgment, slow to try to get them to conform themselves to my views or opinions. I am not their master. I cannot make them stand. I did not save them. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is actually saying, We're free to have opinions and be different because of the finished work of Christ. We're free. The third thing, we need to re-engage anew. Paul does not say isolate and distance. Rather, he says in verse 19, let us pursue that which makes for peace. In other words, let us go towards And how do we do that? How do we make for peace? We're free to have our convictions, our opinions, and private, right? We're free to do that and to love that. But as we seek to engage the body publicly, as we seek to move towards the body, we make a covenant that we will not put stumbling blocks in front of our brothers and sisters to trip them up. That we will die to certain things publicly so that our weaker or other brothers might not be tripped up and ensnared by our opinions. Where's the example of this, beloved? Did you notice what Paul says in Romans 15? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And the epitome of that is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus did not hold to some things. Rather, he gave up some things that he might win and and engraft us into the family, that his posture was not for demanding rights. His posture was for laying certain things down, that he might not trip anyone up on their way to him on the cross. That's what we're called to be like and do, Redeemer. 
1990, a man sprayed acid on Rembrandt's night watch painting. And a museum guard, an unnamed museum guard, armed with a neutralizing agent, quickly applied it on Rembrandt's painting. And he immediately took it down and took it to the back of the museum and they started the uh, repairing process, the preservation process. That's what God is calling us to be like, Redeemer. Not guys and men and women who deface his painting, but he's calling us in Christ to be those who neutralize and preserve and prepare the world to see his masterpiece. And we do that as we live and walk in repentance. We do that as we remember the work of Christ and the freedoms that we have in the body. And we do this as we re-engage one another, seeking the best interests of our neighbors and not ourselves. So help us, Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we commit our time to you. And we pray that your spirit would make us those who don't deface your masterpiece, but those who preserve and those who um, promote and those who put what you're doing on display. Would you help us by your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Redeemer, our benediction will come from Romans 15, and it's right there in verse 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus so that together with one voice we may glorify God our Father and Christ his Son. Amen.